This is Dabalon. My name is Trent Reynolds, and in this podcast, I have conversations with artists about materials. If you are enjoying this podcast and want it to continue, please subscribe or make a one-time contribution at dablon.com forward slash podcast, leave a five-star rating on iTunes, and tell all your friends. The longevity of this program very much depends on your support, and I thank you. In this episode, I have a conversation with artist Cindy Daniel. My focus in these conversations is talking with artists about materials, often to the exclusion of talking about their artwork. Cindy is at the top of her game, creating fantastic artwork, participating in really cool exhibits. I would have loved to talk with her about so many of her projects, shows, and writings, but that's not really what this podcast, this particular ongoing conversation is about. So I want to begin here by encouraging you to go look at and read her work. You can find it at her website, www.cynthiadanio.com. And her Instagram account is Cynthia underscore Danio. Danio is spelled D-A-I-G-N-A-U-L-T. Her writing is very insightful and fun to read. Her paintings are beautiful. And in a time when craft is often underappreciated, it is a breath of fresh air to see excellence in paint handling and material construction. And back to the subject of this podcast, I was interested in talking to Cindy in particular about materials because she is an artist who unlike me, goes for depth over breadth when it comes to materials. She paints with oil paint on linen, and as you will hear, knows those materials to an extraordinary degree. One of the things that has been surprising to me about these conversations about materials is to realize how much variety there is in the amount artists even care about materials. Some artists don't really think too much about what they're using and jump from one medium to another depending on what a piece requires. Others commit fully to a fairly narrow range of materials and don't feel much desire to deviate from that. Some love the materials of art making just as materials, the smells, the feel of smushing paint around, and some only see materials as a means to express something. And so I still feel like I don't quite know what this podcast conversation is exactly about. What I do know, at least I'm fairly certain, is that Cindy Daniel loves oil paint on linen. She has strong feelings about the pigments and oil ratios she uses. I forgot to ask, but I think she uses mostly the same brush, which I would guess is about a 5 eighths inch wide uh, hog's hair filbert. She has strong feelings about the oil primed linen she paints on. It's been cracking me up recently to read Instagram posts about quality control issues with some linen manufacturers. Cindy knows these materials really well and it was a lot of fun to talk to her about them. And now here is my conversation with artist and eminently lovely human being, Cynthia Daniel. I am a painter who uses very traditional materials. I am an oil painter. I paint in oil. I paint on linen. Um, you know, all the bedrocks of very traditional things. And I, I think that's a reflection. I think that choice is a reflection um, of a few things. I think one is at its core, it's probably the fact that I came into art really loving art history and loving, you know, 
the history mm -hmm. of painting and historical painters, you know, and studying painting, whether we're talking about Courbet or Manet or Monet or, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Picasso. But um, I started in that way as a traditionalist. I, I started, you know, doing figure drawing. And when you start on that path, it starts you in a very traditional material path because you know, you're making very traditional paintings, your teachers are very conservative painters. And, you know, it's kind of unquestioned that like, oh, well, if you're following in the path of Picasso, you're going to paint on this piece of linen, and you're going to be an oil painter. And have you ever um, felt yeah. called out outside of that or experimenting? No. <laughs> no, 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 that's interesting. Not. I mean, I every once in a while, I do something else. I mean, yeah, so on one hand, it's like that basis in art history. And then it's probably also that like, uh, you know, I'm conservative in that way, I guess, hmm. you know, that like, um, and I don't know if it's that I never had any interest or if it's that thing where you take one step and you follow the step, you know, your next step follows that step, follows that step, follows right. that step. And I never really like jumped off the path in any way. Like, and there was never some moment of like frustration, frustration or disenchantment that like mm -hmm. made me want to like go a different direction. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I was well, more into the idea of like a practice and doing something for your life and getting deeper and deeper and deeper into it. Do you think there's something about uh, oil paint specifically in that way, mode of rendering that you resonate with that wouldn't be satisfied by exploring other media? Or is it just because that's where you started? That's like, it's, I think, uh, hmm, I wonder. I mean, my my gut would say, I kept doing it because something in it worked with me, you know, like mm -hmm. it, I also, when I started, I was really into vine charcoal. I mean, I was a charcoal, I was a drawer long before I was a painter, like many people mm -hmm. and vine charcoal has a very similar thing to oil paint. It's, it's very slippery and wet and you move it around and, and mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like very imprecise in that way. Unlike, right. you know, pencil or hard charcoal or something. So you know, my guess is my personality is, and the type of person I am and the way I like to work, I like to work fast, I'm a little messy, like, I think that's all drawn, you know, to the materials. That said, there have been moments where I've worked, you know, on a piece or for some reason uh, in acrylic, and it wasn't like horrible, you know, right. but I wasn't so excited by it that I kept working with it. I mean, what do you think I, that is? I, I is the know. is it uh, the difference in color? Is it is it smell? Is it tactile? Or I think it, for me, it's the connection to history hmm. and the probably the slowness of drying. I find you know, I mean, at a certain point, you've worked for so long, and you've gained a certain facility with the materials you have. It's hard to give up some of that, also. You know, like um, like the 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 malleability of oil paint or like all its very specific tactile chem chemical nature. It's, it's, you know, when working another medium now, there's something disappointing, like, Oh, I don't have that thing. <laughs> I don't, I don't have that glide or smush or, you know, whatever, if you're in acrylic or right. watercolor or gouache or something else. Why linen? Do you have strong feelings about linen or is it just because it's a premium material? And no, I, mean, like, and... I think some of it was just, I think it started again, like, you wonder, like, what is just the byproduct of choices you made 
15 years ago that might have been arbitrary and that you just keep doing out of habit or what, you know, but the funny thing is something that you start for some arbitrary reason and you keep going out of habit, it then becomes preference. Do you know what I mean? Like there wasn't something I preferred about linen at the start. It was just like I was becoming a more professionalized artist and some older artist told me um, that he worked on linen, you know, somebody who's more established than myself. And I was like, yeah, linen, that's what professionals use, you know, <laughs> like, right. like that's professional. Right. And like, so the reason I did it at first was just like, that seemed to be what professionals did. And I wanted to be a professional, but um, you know, then after working on it for five or 10 years, yeah, then it becomes like this preference where I prefer the look of the weave, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I prefer the, and I work on, I don't work on a very smooth linen. I work on a, like a medium linen, but it mm-hmm. has a very beautiful weave. And, and you know, Cotton Duck has a, a very grid-like straight up right. weave right. without like all the kind of like beauty. So I think you do get seduced by the materials you work with. I mean, if I had to paint on cotton, I would do it. But, right. you know, um, it wouldn't be, it's not something I, I couldn't live without, but yeah, you do start to, I guess, you know, fall in love with the, the things that I are habitual, I think, at first. Sure. You know? you know, I think something about linen that's always it seemed to me like there is something about the irregularity. Like there's little little knots and little, little uh, irregularities in the pattern that make it feel more accessible to me. Like, the, like it's yeah. the, the rigid, uh, like cotton duck is so precise in how it's formed that, I don't know, there's, there's this kind of, clean distance you know it's like it's almost like more mechanical or something more mechanized more mechanical yeah is a good way to put it i mean i think it's also like weave is a funny thing because you're the person who spends the most time looking at it because you're right your face is like right up in the painting at the distance you really feel the weave you know Mm -hmm. and um more than a viewer who's going to be probably like 10 feet like 10 feet back from the painting. So in some ways those choices are also for you, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like there's something about very, there is something about, I I think the world is getting back into this. There is something about when we say like luxury items, I I, I don't mean that. I think I mean like well-made things, you know, really beautiful, historical, well-made things. The history of linen goes back, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds Mm -hmm. of years, almost a thousand years, right? At this point, like it goes back, like and and the, the 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 actual industry you know in Belgium is has like the people who make it now were still making it in the Renaissance you know and this mm. is tied to fabrics and sail fabrics and like it's a very beautiful well considered object like up from the flax that's then processed that's mm. then you know like spun into the fibers that was woven <laughs> into the linen like. I think there's something that we grew up in this time of like exploding mass consumerism Mm -hmm. where, you know, like things were made en masse and all production moved to China. And it was just about like quick and cheap, like, you know, the rise of fast fashion, right? That Mm -hmm. everything is designed to be used for a couple of weeks and then thrown away. And like, I think for those of us who grew up in that time, there's something very like seductive and deep and important and incredible about something that is made to last Hmm. that's made with time and consideration and history and like 
you know, like a very well-made thing. And it's Mm -hmm. why, you know, a lot of people are rejecting fast fashion and they want, you know, to buy only a few clothes that last forever from like artisanal American craftsmen. I think there is the same seduction in using very like well-made materials that you're saying, like, I care about this thing. It's not meant to be thrown away. Like, you know, like I want this to last. I want it to have that kind of weight. You know what I mean? Not like, it's not a piece of plastic that was made to be thrown away. It's something that, you know, from, from start to finish from like nose to tail is like in its whole making every part of it, it, you know, is made to be kept, not consumed. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, it occurs to me, listening to you talk, the care that you put in and the materials that you use and their longevity kind of forms your, I don't know, the narrative, the con- the continuity, the, the space and time that you want it to engage with. Right. So like if you were to make sure. this painting that is going to dissolve, you know, not very well made, not in good materials, going to yell over time, just the choice of materials and the construction of it is um, saying that you're, you only intend for this object to exist in a story that's much shorter, right? Yeah, that's exactly. much more specific. And I, I find that interesting. Like the materials that we choose in part dictate the conversation that we become part of in terms of like a historical context, right? Like we want, yeah. or do we want to engage the future you know, human beings in the conversation that we're participating in now with this image, or do we not care and, you know, are okay with it just disintegrating and not engaging the future? No, I was going to say, I think it's two things for me. It's like a conceptual thing and a pragmatic thing. And the conceptual thing is like, I want the paintings to be slow. Mm. I want people to like, you know, contemplate and feel them and, you know, like having a really beautiful and slow material, material, like the materiality being that way, slow and considered and, you know, well-made and beautiful to me, it lends to like, you know, the consideration, the slow consideration of the object. Like it's not Hmm. fast fashion. It's not meant to be like fast food. It's not meant to be just glanced at, you know, it's something you can sit with like and keep with you. I mean, that's the, conceptual side of it. I think it's, I think it's interesting too, that you're, I mean, a lot, you've done painting that is like all la prima. You're going around from place to place and, and taking a couple hours to do rendering and moving on. So there is, there is this kind of immediacy or directness or fastness. It seems like in, in the subject matter that you choose and the way that you render. So this relationship between fastness and permanence does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, sure. Yeah, totally. But even so, even in that, like one of those pieces that you're referencing, I mean, like the one, you know, that like one of the paintings might have taken a few hours, but there's 365 of them, right, you know? Right, so right. to me, it is very much that, that like rub between fast and long, like the, the individual is this, you know, small thing, but the whole, you know, right, like right. The, the whole of humanity is much longer than, than the individual or the single painting can to the whole. I mean, there's also, you know, there's also the pragmatic for me, which is, you know, it's funny. I've met artists who are really interested with their work having longevity because they want to like live on, like, like they want their work and ideas to be here 600 years from now. And it's this form of like that ego idea of like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to die. I want to live on. Mm -hmm. Like my work will, will, will be immortal. But I, I don't feel that at all. I think for me, like wanting my work using really um, traditional materials and wanting my work to last without falling apart. 
which is not necessarily a popular idea right now, you know, mm -hmm. or it's not necessarily in vogue. A lot of people don't really care about that at all. And their work is like, right. So flimsy in five, 10 years, you know, so many problems, right. but I, I also just like, I don't want to have to deal with that. Like, you know, selfishly, <laughs> I don't want to get right. a call from a collector exactly. that the work is right. falling apart. You know, mm -hmm. like I had a conversation with a younger artist recently and she was like, well, that won't be my, like I was, she was doing something really nuts, you know, that was like totally against the chemistry of painting and the paintings were going to completely fall apart. And I was trying to encourage her, like maybe she didn't, you know, she's showing in a gallery now. Maybe she didn't want to do that, you know, mm -hmm. or she wanted to rethink how she was making them slightly. And she was like, well, it won't be my problem. Like they'll, Ooh. they'll be sold, you know? Right. And I was like, what well, kind of is your problem? Cause someone calls you and then you yeah. feel like embarrassed and you feel responsible. And like when the work gets more expensive, you feel really responsible, you know? Sure. Uh, yeah. I was as, as a result of that, you know, like, I actually, my work has gotten, my materials have gotten like wildly traditional hmm. because, you know, that thing we were talking about, about living in a time of mass consumerism that goes with art materials too. There's right. so many like products, you know, everything has to be variety. Everything has to be the new thing. So there's lots of like products designed to improve on things in painting. Right now you can buy like 60 different weird mediums, you know, new mediums yeah. to do this yeah. or that or whatever. But the problem is like none of that, a lot of that stuff has not been tested. The way those things mix is definitely not been tested, you know, like, whereas like straight up oil <laughs> and straight up paint, like that's gonna, like we know from experience that that will last a thousand years, you know? So it's like, um, yeah, I've become more traditional and like eschewed anything Anything that wasn't in use like 600 years ago, I'm not using personally, <laughs> you know, like with very little exception. Just okay. So I want to, I, I wanna, want things to fall apart. No, I think that's, well, and there's a respect for what you're doing, a respect for yourself, a respect for the person that, that is going to end up living with this thing that totally. you're making, right? There's something like just morally that feels right about what you're saying, right? It's like, it's just the right thing to do. It, you know it's yeah with two exceptions you know or with a couple exceptions like sure i um i do run a solvent free studio because i like just really called bs on that idea that like an artist should suffer and in, which mm. includes like killing yourself to make your work sure. <laughs> you know yeah, like indeed. and i you know having a kid and going through being pregnant like only doubles those things i do run a lead free studio now and i used to use lead but I don't use lead. I don't use um, solvents, and I really use limit the use of heavy metals like um, uh, as much as possible. I sure. use heavy metal pigments very rarely, you know. And that's caring about myself, caring about my son, caring about the earth, mm -hmm. you know, like and the environment and, and what you know what toxins I put out and trying to limit any toxins coming out of the studio. So, you know, those are the exceptions to my practice not being mimicking 600 years ago but. sure sure in terms of brands i've heard or i've read you reference old holland blue ridge oil are there other brands that you you know I, I try a lot of different kind of paint like different people different people's brands paint is good for different things like you know like you might like sometimes maybe you want to paint that's more fluid or or get mm -hmm. specific so um, I use Williamsburg, Old Holland, Michael Harding, 
Blue Ridge and Robert Doak, pretty much those exclusively. There are some cases where I like one person's color more than another. Like, um, like I really love Robert Doak's vermilion, you know, like he had a great vermilion that I was particularly attached to. You know, you might like some, one person's cobalt more than somebody else's or one person's vermilion, you know, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But also they have really different feels. Obviously, like Old Holland is really stiff. It's very pigment heavy. Mm-hmm. There's like no fluidity to it, which is really nice if you're like tinting something because the pigments are incredibly strong. You know, if you're mixing into something, mixing down into something else, into somebody else's paint or into like a more fluid white or something. Mm-hmm. like that's like they're really strong pigments even still i mean they've gotten worse in the past like 20 years but they're still like some of the strongest pigment available by tube but if you're just painting all of prima and you already want something that's like totally fluid like really squeezable then like you know like m Graham or blue ridge or doke those are really those are painting with a lot less pigment per tube like a lot higher ratio of binder you know, and those are all walnut oil. Those are all walnut oil um, paint paint makers. So the paint's a lot slower drying, which if you want, you know, that's another thing too. Like, do you want a linseed based paint or do you want a walnut based paint? Because if I'm working on something and I want it to be really slow drying and I want a lot of time into it, then I will pick uh, a maker who who uses at least a 50% walnut <laughs> blend. You know? I love that Whereas you know the I percentage of walnut in there. That is so... That's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, you kind of—I mean, at a certain point, you kind of have to. I—I I wondered, looking at your work, uh, knowing your relationship to writing. You know, writing—you've done a lot of it. It's something that obviously is important to you. Does does painting as a medium appeal to you in part because of your relationship with words and writing and pencils and you know stuff like that? I mean, sure. I think, I think when I was younger. Oh, it's two things. One, I've always, I always liked making things, you know, hand in hand with writing. Like I, I always, as a child, you know, I liked art. I liked making things. I was always drawn to doing art classes and doing drawing classes and, you know, kept that up. Not thinking I would be an artist. I, you know, I didn't go to college to be an artist, but um, it was a big part of my life and, and I was going that way, even if I didn't know it. But I think the idea of becoming an actual artist as a job appealed to me when I got to college and I mm. met professional artists, you know, professors, um, and realizing that like for them, art wasn't just making, mm-hmm. it was also thinking, you know, that they're, that when you're young and you're just taking like a figure drawing class, art feels just like doing almost right. like a sport or something. Right. Like, Oh, it's just something my body does or, you know, but I think, once I learned more about or met more artists and uh, it was such a conceptual practice for so many of them that then that felt more like something I was like, Oh, that, that is what I would do with a job. Like it it is this Mm -hmm. joining of parts of myself. Like it is almost like a thesis, Mm -hmm. a visual thesis, you know, you, you are saying something. And I think a lot about the work as as poetry or images, poetry, or that the images do carry Mm -hmm. ideas and feelings with them. You know, like in the same way that an essay can communicate ideas and feelings. And in both cases, you're leaving somebody with something, you know, right. and I'm a nonfiction writer. I've never written fiction. When you're making paintings, do you um, 
I, I don't know, process them through words sometimes? Are you thinking in terms of uh, written communication as well as what you're doing visually? Or do you, are you able to separate those two things out? Yeah. No, it's, I mean, I, it's often written. It's often, I think a lot of it too comes from like the same, or recently at least from the same kind of like idea soup or stream of consciousness void that the writing feels like it comes from there. Like things just pop out onto the page from like, oh yeah, this is connected to that and to that and to that. Like things pop into your mind. And when I'm working on like, a multi-panel image piece that sometimes feels the same way. Like, oh, what about if that gets added? What about if that gets added? Which is almost this intuitive stream of consciousness practice of like what images end up or what content ends up. It's just like paint it instead of naming right. it, you know? And like, it's just an image instead of the word of the image. I mean, they, they definitely feel related to me as practices and mm -hmm. they also feel very different as practices. I mean, like, painting is uh mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to just write mm -hmm. it down you know <laughs> a lot quicker you know not necessarily easier but um there's a there's still the physical practice part of painting which is you know why i was happy to talk about materials because like you know i say all the time painting mm -hmm. is a material practice above all else you know like the ideas or the concepts in the work like are all secondary yeah. or tertiary you know to the, the physical act of, of making the painting and the material reality of, of what the thing is, you know, this, this do you, do you think that's an opinion or that's a belief that is widely held? No, <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> uh, no, uh, no, I mean, I like, I'm glad you feel that way. I, I feel the same, but I, yeah. I'm curious how you see that, you know, in related to how it's more generally thought of. I, I personally, like I, the MFA system, I mean, like I, I could gripe about this, like, in, or it sounds like griping, but I don't mean it that way. But like, I'm sure it works for some artists, but I do think it confuses what painting is. Like this idea that like the MFA system created so much talking about work, you know, like talking like, um, this is what this is about and you name it. And it leads, and like the, you know, also the prevalence of conceptual art in the mid century, like, mm -hmm. and conceptual theory, you know, like critical theory, that people sit there talking about like what the work's about, what it relates to, what the concept is, like what the idea is, or how it's justified by 20th century, like critical philosophy, or, you know, like, um, and that people struggle to understand art. And so they default, they default to this idea of like, uh, being cerebral with it. Like, what is it about? Mm. Like, or being mm. linguistic with it, like putting mm. words to it. But for me, like it's, it, that's like so far from the mark. Like right. to me, painting is a spiritual practice and it's a material object. And m most of its impact is felt and is seen, you know, it's completely wordless. It defies linguistic, you know, description, you know, which is why, people struggle in, in grad school, which is why people like default to like, you know, using words and using philosophy and, you know, to, dipping into other mediums like philosophy to try to explain it. Right. But it, it, it's like one should be talk, dipping into like talking in more about psychiatry or, or religion, you know, to try to describe it <laughs> because what right. it is, right. is like, to me, it's, it's a felt thing, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, I, I do think a lot of, you know, talk about what the work's about really gets away from that feeling of, of how, what does an object mean? How does an object 
feel in a room? How do we relate to an object and to an image and to a visual object? And what feeling do we have when we see that work? How does that connect to I think it also speaks, ideas, you know? it speaks to the anxiety that a lot of us have about having an opinion about something or, mm-hmm. or and noticing how we personally respond to I mean, having an experience with an object, right? Or, or seeing, sure. you know, seeing something. It like relieves us of the responsibility of having an opinion and, and sharing that opinion. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, you know, that, you know, if, if you say, or, agree with somebody else, then you've got the legitimacy at least of having one other person with the same opinion. Sure. Anyway, I, totally. I, I worry about that too. It's like, you know, we're kind of, um, I don't know, we're robbing ourselves of the opportunity to just have a richness of experience in life, you know, just to connect on a very intimate personal level. Yeah. And also just to like, I mean, I, I think part of it, you know, like, having at least in our generation growing up so devoid of production or materials having Mm -hmm. everything just arrive to us on a container ship from china like fully realized in molded plastic i do think you know the hand in hand that went with like it's not surprising that that went hand in hand with a de-emphasis on the material reality of painting or people having this intimate relationship to making things and to like what the parts are and what materials are and like how wonderful, like great materials are, like how wonderful it is to work with a great tool or a great brush Mm -hmm. or a great like pigment. Like, you know, we, we make very little in our lives, you know, and we have very little relationship to like our materials or even, you know, our food. Like we are so divorced from where it comes from in the land or how that works with paintings. And, you know, people don't have the same um, like material intelligence that they did a hundred years ago. You know, and that with that literacy comes an ability to talk about something in terms of ability to talk about the differences, like what makes one thing different than another. Like I was Mm. talking to a painter recently who was asking me to like workshop why her paintings didn't look great. You know, she's like, why don't they look good? (laughs) You know, like Mm. there was was a surface quality that was really unappealing, you know, and uh, she didn't even have the words really to to be to or this enough of a relationship at all to, to even put words to like what the quality was that wasn't right, you know? Hmm. And, uh, and I feel sad for, I I feel sad for students who they don't get any of that in school. There's no talk about materials. There's no education in it. You have to figure everything else yourself. Like the internet is not helpful. You know, Like, like you only learn that stuff from other people, but if you're not surrounded by a bunch of, if you're never lucky enough to get surrounded by a bunch of like-minded painters, then, you know, it's hard you to know, pick up. You just, you just had it made the analogy to our relationship with food and how it's kind of delivered to us. And we don't have a sense of its, uh, of its like physical development, like of it as, you know, something that lived and grew up and was yeah. fed and, you know, all those things Ma- making that analogy to our relationship with maybe art materials and just materiality in general, Mat- material literacy. I'm gonna have to think about that or some kind of a intuition that we don't have because everything is uh, served to us complete and sure. we don't have kind of a, a relationship to it as a, a, an object that comes from plants or from the the earth, you know? I mean, think about painting. It's like a chemical practice, like this understanding of 
chemistry and how materials go together. Right. This understanding like what a solvent is, what an oil mm -hmm. is, what a pigment is, like why, why, what a binder is, why they, why they last, why they look a certain way, why they're shiny, why they're not like, and like that ability to, you have to do a lot of tests and like do a lot of, um, very rigorous work. Right. Like if you're right. really engaging with it, there's a lot of rigorous work in like testing different percentage combinations for your mediums, like mm -hmm. understanding why one dries slower and faster and which is preferable for what you're painting and when it's gets slippery or when it gets tacky, you know, like mm -hmm. wh whether you want it stiff or whether you want it like gelatinous and, you know, like that kind of rigidity that, that would have gone along with like, you know, having to grow up cooking from scratch, you know, without recipes, right. like, right. you know, those were skills that were really built into life in the early 19th and 18th hundreds and the early 19th century and the early 20th century, you know, mm -hmm. whereas we, we have lost a few of those like right. tinkering skills, you know, you can learn them. I'm not saying, you know, people don't learn them. I, I've spent the last 20 years, but I definitely feel like I probably started at a disadvantage to like a Rembrandt or something. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, you could imagine having to, you don't paint if you don't actually make the paint yourself and yeah, pure, procure the pigments and the oil and everything. Um, I, I think what I've noticed when, uh, you know, as a teacher teaching art, there are moments and it's what I love so much about teaching where a student finds a material that they've never considered using. And all of a sudden, like it resonates in a, in a very, like fundamental way and in the material they find new possibility and it's like they're off to the races like mm -hmm. it, it, they they might have been painting with with uh, watercolor and it was great and they enjoyed it and they you know had been painting with it for 10 years but then they start making a collage and all of a sudden like the world makes sense and mm -hmm. now they and, and you can just see this like like this instant aha moment that i you know find immensely rewarding and i you know i, I think a lot of us yeah, I think people are missing out on that that connection with a material, with process, with making, you know, putting things together. That or you know. you know what it was for me is like you know I do a lot of like grad student visits with people, like studio visits, mm -hmm. and I've had this experience honestly like twelve times maybe in the last couple of years where I go into somebody's studio and they're like struggling and they're having a prop a problem, right? And they know something's not working with the work. And they, in their mind, it's this conceptual problem. It's the content problem. Hmm. Like, oh, you know, like, um, you know, am I painting the wrong thing or this? You know, like, what about the subject or this? You know, and it, I, and I come in and sometimes it's just this very clear material problem, you know? And it's mm -hmm. like, it's like, wait a second. Like, what are, I remember this specific studio. I went in and like the paintings looked like so sickly and sad and like depressed you know like <laughs> she wanted this like completely other feeling and I right. was like looking at her palette and I was like what is your wait break down for me what your palette is like what color what specific colors you're painting with you know and the only green on her palette was a phthalo green and she had like oh, gosh. and she had yeah. like one you know solvent cup and it was like infecting everything you know yeah. and I was like right. I was like and she's like, I just want him to feel like, and I was like, no, this is not, a, this is no, this is not a you're a bad painter problem. This is not a like conceptual problem. You, you, you need to go by Viridian and like get, get rid of that phthalo. Like, right, right. It, you know, like, and it, it like fixed 
the painting, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think that's the thing for me sometimes is like, it's all important. Like I'm, I'm not, you know, we can talk about all of it, but you know, I, a lot of people seem, a lot of young students seem pretty disserviced by like not understanding that like some of the issues with their painting are, you know, or medium. I could I mean like mediums, like pe- people are, it's just like, that's a mess, you know, like right, why is, right. why is this thing so wet? And it's like, well, you're just like throwing 10, gallons of turpentine in it you know like i can't i can't help you here you know anyway i i want to help people sometimes but you try you try it it hurts my heart you walk into a studio and you've got like that those uh solvent streaks you know where they've just trying to bend you know paint with oil like it's watercolor and just uh, there's a very characteristic kind of dripping that happens with solvent when oil paint um so i've I love your writing, um, but who who are some of your your favorite art writers? Oh, your, people who you emulate or respect? Or... I mean, I think you know I I'm into like creative nonfiction writing. I guess mm-hmm. like people who blend some kind of fiction and nonfiction. Like mm-hmm. Joan Didion or Sebald. I mean, I really love Sebald. I mean, he's not really an art writer, but he is an art writer. So mm-hmm. I'll say Sebald. Mm-hmm. Um, who's, you know, I think that 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 writing really has a quality of one of my painting pieces. I mean, he's a genius, but um, or what I would want them to be, this kind of journey you take people on through many different things and many different ideas that connect, you know, to the deepest ideas in people's life about time and life and death and love and family Mm -hmm. and, you know, but bringing in all the world and culture into them, you know? Um, I, I love that. I mean, the the words you use are very careful and, uh, but they're accessible. Like, I don't, I don't feel like you, you let yourself get to all the, you know, the, the fancier language, the words that are kind of the keystone words for a lot of, you know, art talk. And I, and then you'll use, um, uh, you know, cultural references that are, that anchor what you're saying in, in a, in a context, I think in just a, a really masterful way. And, and it's just, it's not just informative and thoughtful, but it's like, it's really fun to read. I just, oh, I, uh, I, I, I you writing. know, I'm a populist at heart, Trent. If you look at my paintings and at my writing, above all things, maybe either I have some kind of disorder where I just want to be liked, like, mm. um, but I'll take it as like a populist. I mean, you know, the more people that are at the party, the better. Absolutely. I think, well, you, you're really, I guess that points to my, what I complimented you on earlier is, you know, you are really able and open and welcoming, I think. Yeah. Welcoming. You just want yeah. people. Yeah. I mean, like. I, I, with painting especially I mean I, it's not to say the other kind of work is invalid it's not it's just like for me personally I wanted something that like my parents could come to the museum or like the people I went to high school with or <laughs> like you know it doesn't have to just be for an art a quote-unquote like art audience you know that it's okay if lots of people can like it if children can like it if, if older people can like it you know like that makes me feel it's just what I wanted for my work I mean it's to me, it's equally valid to make something just for your peers or just for like a very small group of people. But I really wanted the work to be accessible to lots of different kinds of people, whether it's in, you know, on view in 
New York City or in Arkansas or in, you know, Florida or California, you know, wherever. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you tell me why I should care about Sean Landers? Sean. I read, I read half of one of his, you know, three inch thick journal books. And I almost felt like I was getting some understanding of, you know, why I should care. Can you, can you explain? I know you've written sure. about Sean. <laughs> well, I, 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 I wrote read. on Sean. I wrote, I wrote a piece on Sean. So, um, yeah, I, I wrote an essay for his monograph, yeah. like that was yeah. maybe 10 years ago and got very deep into Sean's work for that job, for that project. Um, I like Sean a lot. And I think there's a lot in his work to care about. I think a lot of his work at the core, the shortest answer is it all shares. Um, it's about the metaphor of being an artist and um, about the like, like thinking inside an artist's head when they're making. So his text pieces were, you know, this attempt to visualize this thing that was going on inside all artists' heads, you know, like to paint the the cerebral experience of making an artwork, right? Mm-hmm. Which is on one level this self-portrait, like this mental self-portrait. It's also this, you know, like fictional self-portrait of, of what Picasso might have been thinking, you know, like mm-hmm. what, like... I really love those text works for that reason that they are very tight that way because the the painting itself is a painting that depicts the thinking of making the painting. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think they're very universal to the wild, these wild swing, they're educational. And I think they, they visualize a universal experience, which is these wild swings between self-hatred and loathing and insecurity and feelings of grandeur, you know, like, mm-hmm. I am a genius. <laughs> this is the best thing that's ever been made. I am terrible. I'm hungry. I just want to go to beer. This painting sucks. I'm awful. You know, right. like, I miss my girlfriend. Like, now I'm a genius again. You know, like, there, right, right. it's, to me, uh, you know, he, he spent a career exploring this, the psychology of being an artist, which is you know, very relatable for the psychology of being a human. Sure. And it, I don't know, I find that, I find that like very touching because that certainly explains my experience. I have days in the studio where I am awful. I'm the worst person ever. It's like, I've messed it up. It's so terrible. And I have days where I'm just like, I am the greatest painter that ever <laughs> lived, you know? Sure. I'll have, have to go back and look at his work and, you know, Thank you can you. read my essay. There you go. Yes, I should. I will. I will, I will read your essay. Um, have you ever read the book, uh, A Portrait by James Lord? The, he, he wrote about, it's a tiny book. He wrote about sitting for a portrait uh, for Giacometti. Oh, cool. And, and he documents a lot of Giacometti's self-talk, and it's exactly the same thing. It's like, I'm horrible. I'm never getting this right. And, you know, he'd finish a day of painting and just wipe it all away. Yeah. And then James Lord asked him, like, if you're so horrible and you're never going to do get it right, why do you do this? And then he says something like, I'm the only one that could do it. Because I am a genius. And, I'm and, the and, only one that could do this impossible thing, but yeah. I am horrible. But yeah. I'm horrible. Yeah. I, I, I think there's room for that. You know, there's room for, like, um, getting into the psychology of the artist. 
Oh, for sure. And there's he's funny too. There's room for funny. I uh, people who don't take themselves too seriously and let let painting be funny sometimes is also I think um, very sweet, very redeeming. So with him tying him back to what we were talking about earlier, is is experiencing his work primarily a physical thing, you know, or visual thing, or is this a situation where the work is more conceptual? Oh, both. I mean, you know, like. Uh, Do you experience his paintings and and enjoy them on that level on the on the just the material visual? Yeah, level? I think it's a, I think it depends which which series or which work you're talking about. Sure. I think they're pretty sure. varied, you know. But if you're talking about a text painting, like I, I think text paintings are cool because mm -hmm. on that level you read them. There, but that's still this phenomenological experience of your body sitting there and you're reading while you're mm -hmm. looking, you know, like, and your eyes are moving across the canvas. But you also see it as like this visualization of text and and feel and think about text, like the right. simplest thing, of like you know, a drawing on a cave wall, like tying painting back to this idea of mark making and you know, making shapes and the brushwork is shapes. And yeah, I mean, I, I think any object is, it doesn't matter whose work we're talking about. Any, any painting is experienced on a material level. I mean, whether it's uh, you're getting a funny thing or you're having a cerebral experience or you're having an emotional experience, I mean, that's up to the artist, but right. I don't think anyone's work is devoid of, of that that experience for me, physical lightning round on oh, materials. Go for it. Uh, you have a picture of a bunch of black tubes of paint turned upside down. What black is that? I tried to get close enough to read the pigment and I couldn't do it. Oh, that's like a secret. <laughs> I, of course, of course you turned it upside down. So nobody would know. What? I, thought, well, I was going to ask you. Um, anyway. No, I, I will you say, say no, I will say, say I knew I was going to do a black and white show. I had made like a piece that was black and white. I, I wanted to, sometimes like a solo show comes from a single piece that I want to expand on. Like I'm like, there's more there. Like I could spin that out. That's often where they start. Like some piece feels really pregnant and I, I want to give birth to its kittens or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I had made a black and white piece that I was like, there's something cool about the pathos of this. It's very quiet it gets very close to drawing and like connects back right. to charcoal. And like, um, it's really like highlights the mark making and my brushwork is a, a lot about my work. And so I was like, this will be a really like boiled down experience. And when you decide you want to make a black and white show, and this is a good material lesson, maybe, um, one could just start working, you know, however, like, um, that show I knew, I, I knew that, I wanted it to feel just right. Like I wanted it to be just the right white and just right black. And um, I was working wet into wet. And so I needed a lot of time. And so I needed a pretty like slow drying white to allow. So I ended up, it was the, probably the, like one of the first times I really did the thing where, which is I always believed like a professional artist did. And I, you know, I didn't do until like I was in my late thirties, which is I got, I like, bought 10 whites and stretched a bunch of test canvases and like taped them off and did little strips and like, you know, saw with different mediums how long each one took to dry and which one yellowed the most and like, you know, wow. which medium each should have. <laughs> and like, right, right. I got, you know, then once I picked my white, I bought 20 tubes of black and like sat there and, you know, like, made a little test canvas with each tube of black and let it dry and decide on like just the right one that I wanted. And, um, you know what? It was no brainer. Like there, 
it, it's amazing how differently they felt. It's amazing how like a really cool black felt one way and, you know, a warm black feels a totally different way. And in the particular one I chose has, um, it is a really interesting black because it sits on the warmer shade, like almost towards a yellow, yellowy warm, not like a red warm. It's, you know, sits towards yellow black and it has a very gritty pigment. The, the pigment's not that smooth. Hmm. And because of that, when, imagine you put down a wet white ground, like on the back of the painting. So like the painting has like a full wet white ground. And when, when I would draw some black over the white, like put some black on a brush and draw over it, the black pigment is sitting in front of the white and that pigment is very gritty. So it's very spaced out in the oil. Mm -hmm. And so it gave a kind of luminescence because some of the white's coming through and it gave a very warm black because the black is sitting on top of the white. But when you work through it a little bit in areas where white goes on top of the black or where you mix the like pigment more with the white, it becomes a very cool black because mm. mixed with the titanium and like fully mixed when it wasn't sitting on top of it, when the white is more sitting on top of the black um, and the white has so, the titanium has so many more pigment that it's covering those black ones. So it mm. really gets a lot of the coolness of the white. And so the paintings became those ones were really complicated could, could be more complicated because I could play with areas where I wanted the black to be warm and areas where I wanted the black to be cool, you know, rather than just a straight monochromatic of white to gray. Like it gave right. me this warm gray and this cool gray and a, a cool white and a warm black. I don't know. It was just like, was it a clear choice when you found it? Like, it was, was a it... clear choice. <laughs> I mean, for me, for, I don't know. It was what I wanted, but like if I had wanted something that felt more cool or more like photography or what I, I would have picked probably a different one, you know? Like, and for that series, were you using Kremnitz at the, at the time or were you using a different white? No, I, I, I don't know if I made the right choice. I have some, like, I have regrets about it, but the, um, at first, the first time I did it, the first show where I made a black and white one in that show in LA I used um, an M. Graham white because those are 100% walnut oil binder mm -hmm. for the right. pigment. And so it's really slow drying. However, you know, I discovered later, and this is like my fault for not being on it at the time, but whatever, we, we, we learn things later. I don't know if you're following, but like, um, you know, as of like five years ago, zinc, um, zinc is being taken out of a lot of whites like out of a lot of like blends because of its brittleness. Hmm. Um, because over time zinc like was getting added to a lot of whites because it makes it whiter. Like mm -hmm. it, if you put like a 10% blend of zinc into a titanium, you get a much whiter white um, hmm. that has to do with like how the pigment sits in the oil and it yellows it, it because it has the, it has to do with yellow, you know, yellowing in paint has to do with the linseed oil coming up and coming up over the pigment. So you have like the oil in front of the white pigment. So it gets a yellow tone. Mm -hmm. And whereas zinc, the way that the pigment sits in the oil, it, it not as much oil comes up right mm -hmm. over the zinc. So anyway, they, used, they were starting like over the last, I don't know, 20 years, they were adding a lot more zinc 40 years to titanium, but the Smithsonian did some landmark study, like 
seven years ago that showed that like there's a real brittleness to zinc if it's mi- like in thick layers that zinc really should only be used on top layers as like a highlight like a you know a That's nose highlight on a rembrandt or a cloud highlight on a turner right, right. you know but that zinc is not good like mixed in in heavy amounts the way that people are painting in like 2021 and um so a lot, most of the major paint manufacturers took zinc out of their whites like you can still buy a zinc pure white if you're doing highlighting but they took zinc out of the blends right mm-hmm. and um at that time that was just happening when i made that show like Michael Harding hadn't taken it out yet. Old Holland hadn't taken it out yet, but Williamsburg had taken it out. Like it was mm. in process. And at that moment, M. Graham has still had some zinc in their white. So I have some regrets about it because those paintings are slightly brittle, meaning they just have to be, they have to be really careful because they're on, right. if you're on panel, it's no big deal. But if you're on fabric, you know, they right. could crack. Right. So I, after that show, I switched until like, I would love to, use that M gram because that walnut oil is so slow drying that mm-hmm. like the paint is so fluid, but like until they take the zinc out, it's just not like a safe color. So everybody, I don't know everyone seems to be coming along though. Like Michael Harding took it out this last six months ago. So mm. I don't know. Zinc. That's my new thing. Be careful. Got it. Got and it. We're, we're talking cracking in like six years. Or ten years, not cracking in like hundred years. Yeah, that's no, that's no time at all. No that's cracking crazy. like soon. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um. Anyway, that was like a really long digression. <laughs> <laughs> it was like way too technical for anyone. So I love. No, uh, no, I loved it. What do you, uh, in conclusion, I guess you know, just wrapping things up. Do you uh, what What are you up to now? What shows are up? What are you working on? Uh, what can people go look and see? What the latest what and greatest with you? See? see right now i have mm-hmm. up now nothing i think i have uh you just had like two or three big shows i just shows, had a few right? shows yeah, yeah yeah so i have uh i have a work on permanent collection at the baltimore museum of art and i have a work called light atlas that's on permanent travel it maybe just came down from the hudson river museum in new york um, cool. it's traveling though. It will go somewhere else. I, I don't know its next location right now, but it will go somewhere soon. So keep an eye out for that. Um, in a town near you. Where do people find, find, uh, where's the canonical place to search for what you're up to? I, I know you have uh, a website. I use my website. I update my website. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Trent, this has been so enjoyable. <laughs> Thank um, you so much for making time. I'm so glad you did. Thank you, Cindy, for talking materials with me and being so generous with your time. I love Cindy's work, y'all. Make sure you check out what she's up to. Go see her paintings in person if you get the chance. You can see some paintings and read selections of some of her writing on her website, CynthiaDanio.com, and follow her on Instagram at Cynthia underscore Danio. That's Danio spelled D-I-A-G-N-A-U-L-T. And thanks for listening to Dabalon. I'm glad you're there. I will have another conversation for you soon, so come back. Also rate this podcast on iTunes. Make a donation on the website and tell friends and family. And uh, go see if you can make it through a complete Sean Landers book and tell me what you think. Mm